This podcast is brought to you in part by Surewinder, the industry-leading tool for winding residential and commercial springs with a cordless drill. Your business depends upon having the best technicians. Ensure their shoulder health with Surewinder tools. See us at surewinder.com. Hey there, everybody. My name is Hannah. Welcome to another episode of Torsion Talk, the podcast where we talk about the garage door industry and how you can grow your garage door business. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Torsion Talk Podcast. Today, I uh, took it upon myself to uh, line up an interview that I felt would be super helpful for our listeners, especially for those business owners or even 1099 uh, contractors out there who work for other companies. Today, we have uh, Angela Watson, who happens to be my CPA and one of the smartest people that I know when it comes to this. And uh, I felt like she's an expert in her field. With the new year coming up and tax time, uh, we're releasing this roughly around January. So I thought it would be a great time for us to uh, do a podcast on taxes, status, and things of that sort. So we can educate the garage door industry on um, changes and what's going on and uh, taxes and things that you might be able to take advantage of things that you can no longer take advantage of. And for me, there's no better person to talk to uh, than Angela, who is a CPA. And uh, so, Angela, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for taking the time to do this. I know we've been trying to line it up for a while, and I know you are, like, probably the busiest person that I know. (laughs) So thank you. I appreciate it. Um, So I've been using Angela for what? Three years? I believe so. I think I found out from you through Amanda, who used to work for me. I just saw her husband, actually, at Wild Wing um, last week. But um, it was a great referral. And I would say that prior to you, I've always used uh, someone um, that was just kind of a normal CPA who didn't specialize in business. And I feel like... um, I don't have to worry about it anymore. I can just, you know, give you my stuff. You keep on top of everything and um, we just get it done. Like I don't stress around tax time anymore. And that, that feeling is so nice. I just want you to know that. That's a great compliment. Thank you. We strive to make it easy on our clients and make it where it's, uh, where, where we keep on top of it. So you don't have to. So, I, I've never really gotten to know my CPAs, mostly because they're usually very dry. You're not dry. Mm-hmm. Is that, I mean, if you always just had kind of like a good personality, I mean, why is the CPA world kind of like a dry personality? Why do you think that is? You know, I hadn't figured it out yet either. I think that's why I ended up out on my own so early and, and uh, could never stay with accounting firms. I couldn't, uh, the culture was not me. I am not the type that wants to wear a suit every day. I ride a motorcycle to work whenever I can. Um, I've, uh, I do CrossFit. I work out. Most of the accounting community does not work out. <laughs> so right. it's, uh, I have a lot of interests that, um, that don't seem to be the trend in the accounting industry. So um, I don't like sitting around talking about accounting when I'm not doing accounting. <laughs> yeah. 
I can tell you work really hard while you do your thing and then you play really hard when you're not. I think I realized like every year I've talked to you before, like you make time for your personal life and um, it kind of revolves around the down times of accounting. And I think you go to like bike week and all that, right? I do. I do. I uh, just got back from the fall Thunder Beach rally in Panama City. Nice. Went How to the that? spring rally. It's right after the tax deadline. So fortunately, they both hit right after tax deadline. That's beautiful. But, uh, so it's a good break. Was that fun? What is that like? I've never been to a bike week or anything like that. I imagine it's uh, uh, a lot Panama of City's pretty low key. Really? Yeah, and I'm not a big I'm not a big drinker, but uh, I've never understood why the drinking and the and the motorcycle riding to me that just doesn't fit together. Yeah, they don't. So, really but together. I love being on the bike and going riding. And you go down to the the bike rallies like that in Panama City. It's more of a uh, kind of a swap meet it's more looking for parts and bike you know bike seats and things that if you order them online you really can't touch them and don't know what they're they're like so it gives you an opportunity that's pretty much it. and then you're surrounded by bikers so it's nice you look at all the bikes as you're walking through and all the bikes are different and um i don't know it's just something to do to immerse immerse yourself in the motorcycle world for a few days and i can't help to notice that your biceps are bigger than mine <laughs> So you must do very actually, well at CrossFit. I uh, I actually competed powerlifting off Did and on really? for almost twenty years, and then yeah, and then started doing CrossFit about I don't know maybe five years ago. So and every year I've gotten better. They have the an annual com- uh, competition called the Open that that is five weeks. They put out the workout on Thursday. You log it by Monday, and um, you do it in front of a judge at the gym and. It's this big thing literally across the world. So you kind of get to see how you rank in your age category by sex, by, you know, by location if you want. Um, or like I said, the whole world, the U.S., Southeast, all that. And it's every year it's it's come up. So it's always great to see progress. That's awesome. So, Well, cool. It's fun. Well, it's always different. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Um, and, and mad kudos to you. You seem like probably the most disciplined person I've ever met. I mean, you, you got control of your calendar. I mean, you're always just seem like you're very on point and every minute has a purpose in the day. So I think that's pretty cool. Thank you. We try. So I've seen your staff grow. Uh, how many people you got over there now? There are five of us total now. Wow. Impressive. So congratulations on that. You got a good team. I do. It has been a long time coming. As a small business owner, as, as the same with many of my clients, the biggest challenge is staffing. Yeah. So it has taken me years to, to get to the point that we're at now where I feel like we're going into the next tax deadline, uh, next busy season is better than we ever have. So we finally have the right people in place and everybody is, uh, most of them are be, have already been trained, but we're you know doing the final training leading up to the tax deadline. So I think we're going to be in a great position and it's just and the culture here is not like your average accounting firm it's a top-down effect <laughs> nice. i want everybody to be able to enjoy their families and not be a number and not be and i want anybody in my firm working so hard that they can't enjoy their life that's so awesome. it's, it's not about being an accountant it's about being a person i think that's so, probably why you and i get along so well i'm the same way here <laughs> honestly i run my business the exact same way so you got to take care of your people that's that's your biggest asset that's true I totally agree. 
So I'm going to jump in and ask you some questions uh, that I think might be helpful. And if I ask a stupid question, because I accounting taxes, that portion of uh, owning a business probably isn't my strength. So I've hired around that. Right. So um, I've never been great at it. Uh, one of my buddies and client for my marketing company um, actually didn't know about it either. And I applaud him all the time. I think it's just awesome. He was one of his weaknesses. So he went and took accounting classes um, to learn how to do QuickBooks and run his finances. I just, I like, I think that's cool. I just don't have the time to do it. And I have really good people that I trust uh, to handle that. So um, when it comes to this, uh, I'm going to ask you questions, but if the questions come off the wrong way and there's a better way to ask it, just change it, right? And go down the path that you think would be more educational or entertaining for our listeners. Um, I tried to do as good as I could, but uh, all right. So question number one, Um, I remember like, Back in the day, every every four years we go through election and um, oh, this reminds me of another question. I'm going to ask you about uh, election years and consumer trend. Like, I don't know if you get into that, but um, Trump was elected four years ago and there was a big deal about him taking care, like uh, advantage of a lot of loopholes uh, in his businesses. And he point blank came out and was like, yeah, I take advantage of them. They're there. I use them. Um, but he then would back that up with saying, I'm going to close a lot of the loopholes. Um, have you seen any loopholes closed or changes uh, when it comes to that since he's been elected? For the smaller business, I've actually seen a, a kind of a broadening. I don't know about loopholes, but I've seen a. They definitely cut taxes for corporations. They've tried to encourage growth uh, coming back in, bringing bringing foreign money back in, um, encouraging foreign entities to come invest in the U.S. instead of the opposite, and us taking things overseas. Uh, it's been interesting because Trump, and I was excited to see Trump coming in, whether, you know, and not from a partisan Democrat, Republican standpoint, because I don't get into that, but uh, just from the standpoint of a business owner versus a politician. To have a business owner in there who has um, had successful businesses, had unsuccessful businesses, and seen it from his aspect instead of a politician who's never had a real job or, you know, comes through, uh, you know, never had their own company. Um, doesn't know what the average everyday American goes through. They're so, I don't know, kind of encapsulated in their own little world right. that's not like everybody else's world. Yeah. So, but anyway, but watching Trump, the you know the the thing he has done is stimulate the small businesses. He's offered a lot of benefits to the small businesses. He lowered the corporate tax rate for C corporations. Uh, for your average business owner of our size, it's more. Um, he did this twenty percent deduction that your flow-through income from your business, only you basically only get taxed on 80% of it. Now, there's some limitations. There's some ceilings. It's all the, – under the Obama administration, the taxes had actually – since I have been in the accounting world, which – tax world, which is over 20 years, um, it was some of the worst taxes I had seen the entire time I'd been in as far as hitting the middle class. And then when uh, Trump came in, it actually lightened up a little bit on the middle class. Now, I don't know that um, it was great for business owners. Some of the other people may not have quite gotten back down to where they were pre-Obama as far as the taxes. But 
it at least helped take pressure off the middle class. So that was great to see. That's interesting. Um, it, go ahead. Yeah, I just um, that's very interesting. I didn't know that about the middle class. Uh, I feel like um, the middle class right now, just from from me going out sometimes to jobs, I'm walking into probably mid mid upper and upper uh, class and there's a lot of home projects going on right now. Like even like I'll be there doing a quote on a garage door and they'll be putting in a pool. They'll be redoing like kitchens and bathrooms and flooring and painters will be there. Like, (laughs) and and you're talking homes usually in the 150 to, you know, 800,000 range is what we see the most of. And, uh, and it's all over the scale. Like I'm seeing this, with all from, from all ranges, uh, which is pretty impressive. And I've never seen more service trucks out on the road, uh, than I have. And I've only been doing this for four years, so I haven't been paying attention prior to that. So, you know, I don't have anything to compare it to, but I'm very optimistic, um, when it comes to the economy and home services, just because when I do roll up, it's not uncommon for me to see, another, uh, service truck in the driveway, uh, doing work on someone's house or a neighbor having a pool put in or whatever. So it's just interesting. Uh, everything that's going on. It is interesting. It seems almost like there's more, um, there's more renovating houses right now than there is going and buying new houses. But then again, the pressures in Atlanta in the metro area of trying to find houses. I know in my area, um, it's, the supply and demand is, is a little challenging. I mean, I, when I purchased my house two years ago, it took, I, I think this was the third house I'd made an offer on. So, and it needs to be renovated, which is why I could get it. But anything that was renovated was flying off the, flying off the market. So, of which, um, how's your garage doors doing? My garage doors are great. And that ah. was an incredible experience, by the way. I was very happy with the, uh, with the entire process of y'all installing that. And it works wonderfully. And it's quiet. That's awesome. <laughs> you it, can't it, even it. hear it upstairs. You can actually sneak in. That's awesome. <laughs> some people like that and some people don't. It's funny. I get, like, husbands tell me a lot. that They're like, man, it's too quiet. Like, can I get, like, a push notification when my garage door opens? I'm like, <laughs> uh, what are you doing anyway? So, uh, anyway, I thought that was interesting. I yeah, that that's always time. an option. I've, yeah. I've got uh, my queue, I think, from the garage door yeah. where y'all supplied. So, that that does push it through. Yeah, <laughs> Sometimes yeah. it's not fast enough. Sometimes I get upstairs before it gets to your phone. But. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, tell me about, you've been in this for 20 years. You've seen the incomes of some of the businesses that you've run. Have you... I don't know if you've paid attention, um, but this and this is a question that I just thought of while we were talking. Um, have you seen a difference in income or profits on election years, and and how does election year affect the economy? Do you have any insight into that? I will tell you. There's, I mean, there's always a delay from an accounting standpoint of really seeing what happens. Like people get insecure about the economy and then it kind of drives people to not spend so much money and um, and then the economy kind of dips a little bit. And I will tell you this, there is instability in an election year, no matter what. It doesn't matter who's going in. It doesn't matter if it's a Democrat right. going in or a Republican grow, going in. It's all, there's always going to be an instability in what's going to happen. So, and then, then even when they get in, are they going to do what they say they're going to do? What are they right. going to start changing right off the bat? How long is it going to take them to change it? I mean, we've seen so many... Um, it's just like with health, this health care act. They can't figure out what to do. They can't, you know, you've got the 
Democrats against the Republicans, which I think is horrible. I wish they could work together and come up with something, but right. um, but it's a huge issue, and they just can't tackle it. So it just keeps getting put off, put off, put off, and then it's unfunded. For 2018, they um, 2018 was the last year with the penalty. So basically, if you don't have health insurance, there's no penalty now. But that that unfunded the whole program. So we're going to watch it implode. But you're seeing some creative ideas come out from medical doctors, from these uh, the, the Christian healthcare ministries. Uh, there's there's Beyond all kinds of Christian solutions Metashare. coming out, and I think that's a great thing. Yeah, I used Christian Medishare when I started the company, and it was great for me. Um, it allowed yeah. me to not get penalized because I had some type of coverage, um, and it was affordable. And they like the program just really worked for me. I'd like to get to the point where I have enough cash where I only have a health plan that covers like big things because I don't go to the doctor very often. Yeah. And so that's, yep. that's kind of my goal um, as a business. And owner, I think that's what's bankrupting the whole health insurance. And I mean, that's one of those stresses put on the health insurance industry. Let's put it that way is all this preventative care. I mean, I get it, but it's making doctors a lot of money without, uh, you know, it's it's just it's a big drain on the insurance. Yeah. So it's there is a big movement back to I don't want to pay for it. I'm not going to go do a lot of the preventive maintenance, and I'm going to you know I I just want something in case of an emergency. Yeah. So, and they don't cover so much. There's so many things that are not covered under health insurance that you're paying out all this money, and then you're still spending thousands of dollars know, a year on crazy. stuff that they consider elective. So it gets really frustrating. It seems almost like if you don't, it, it basically pays for cancer, heart attacks, and anything else. You're kind of, you know, in an emergency here and there, and that's about it. Right. So it's frustrating. I had, I think that like anything to do with government and healthcare, there seems to be like a lack of business mindedness. Um, healthcare confuses me because, you know, we pay a premium every month and typically it's very high. I just did some like pretty major damage into my ankle, like uh, tendons and ligaments and had to go to uh, get x-rays just to make sure it wasn't broken. And so they're like, okay, well we're, you know, we're going to suggest you get this brace. Um, it's an ankle brace. So she's like, you know, it's $130 billed to your insurance. If they choose not to pay it, you'll have to pay it. And I'm like, I think I can get this brace on Amazon for like $25. I was like, why would my insurance company pay 130? And she's like, well, if you want to pay cash, we can drop it dramatically. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Oh yeah. Like why uh, yeah. I get the philosophy. Right. But that's, I think what's wrong with the system is, you know, everything's inflated to the insurance company. That's like an accessory or outside the norm because they cut into the, the bill so much for the routine stuff that they've got to do. And I don't know. I got a whole problem, but that's a whole nother show. I want to stay on task. Um, <laughs> I think you and I both can go on. A yeah, I've got, I've got clients in the medical industry and there's, there's a whole lot of aspects to it and a whole lot of things that are wrong with it. It's, it's amazing to me when you get more and more into it and see more and more professionals in the industry, you're like, excuse me, you get paid how? So it's, it's pretty bad. Yeah. It's pretty inconsistent. and There's so much that could be done, but God knows when they'll do it. Yeah. I think, um, one of the main reasons, and I had told you this, one of the main reasons I thought of having you on is because our industry is full of really, really good tradesmen who are trying to learn the business side. And so um, this question is uh, kind of important because I think a lot of guys try to find a cheap tax person 
and they may not be as knowledgeable. So as a business owner, what are some of the things that we should be taking advantage of when it comes to tax credits or current loopholes? And are there some things that we should probably stay away from, even though we should take it or we could take advantage of them because we'd maybe be exposed to audits or things that they're looking at? You know, there's, hold on, let me take that in order. Um, <laughs> so it, you've got your basic business expenses that you always want to deduct. I mean, you want to make sure you're taking advantage of everything that you can and not be too aggressive, but not be too under aggressive either. But um, so anytime, anything that has anything to do with business is obviously going to be deductible. And then some of the, sometimes it's how you structure it, how you document it as to whether it's going to be deductible. If you're traveling and your primary purpose is business, but you've got a little bit of a personal element to it, that doesn't mean that the travel is knocked out and not deductible. Um, mileage logs are a big thing. No one keeps them. They need to keep them. They're easier and easier because you've got all kinds of apps that you can use on your telephone now. The hard part comes in. I still haven't found a good app if you have multiple cars. But if, I mean, you swipe left, if personal swipe right with if business, I mean, they're, they're that easy. So, but the mileage logs are big on substantiating your business expenses, and that's probably one of the areas that is um, probably underdocumented by most business owners. So, but even then, I've watched IRS audits where they've said if you've got a, a receipt from an oil change at the beginning of the year and an oil change at the end of the year showing what the total mileage is, then you can make an, an acceptable estimate of what you're deducting. Okay. Um, and with the automobile expenses, you can take direct expenses or you can take mileage. So. Whether you do one or the other, you still need to keep the mileage log so that you know what the business use percentage is So, because it can change how much you get to deduct. Um, other than that, you've got your – they changed it this year with the meals. It used to be that travel meals were, were 100% deductible. Now they're 50%. Oh, wow. Uh, meals and entertainment with clients. Meals have always been – meals with clients have always been 50% deductible, or they have for a long time. Um, those are still 50%. Employee meals where you provide uh, meals to the state, to your staff while so that they can work through lunch or for a business meeting, those are now 50% deductible as of 2018. Um, those, those used to be 100%. 100%. Okay. I need to cut back they on were. that. They were. We do so one-on-ones on here, and I take all my guys to lunch um, or breakfast, depending yeah. on their schedule. Um, I spend a, yeah, so now those are 50%. Okay. You still deduct them, but they're 50%. And then the one thing that – another thing that got changed was entertainment, though. That got a big hit. Entertainment is zero. Cannot take it. Oh, wow. So you can still run it through your business. It's uh, it's backed out for the tax calculations. So – but it's anything that's season tickets to a football game or going to a football game, baseball game, um, golfing, things like that, not deductible. Okay. So meals and drinks, those are deductible. And that's at a federal level. So that was a, a big hit on small right? It's federal, and the state um, state generally mocks those. And I and and there's a big thing. The state does it. It's funny. I'm going to segue into that, and we'll come back to what we were talking about. But there isn't a big issue between what the state accepts and what what the federal accepts. So the federal makes all these tax law changes. The state gets to go – all the states get to go in and say, okay, I accept those changes or I don't, or I accept this change but not that change. So in some of the depreciation calculations, when you when you buy a truck, for example, um, and the 6,000-pound SUV. So there's this big deal about the truck's over 6,000 pounds, SUV's over 6,000 pounds. They get to be fully depreciated. That means you get to take the entire amount of the vehicle 
in depreciation over the life of the vehicle. With the Section 179 expense, you get to take $25,000 up front first year and then depreciate it over five years. There's another thing called bonus depreciation. That allows you to take 100% up front. So you can deduct 100% of your car if it's over 6,000 pounds or uh, your truck up front in the first year that you buy it. Now, there's a couple of issues with that. Number one, you're deducting the entire thing up front. means it has no tax basis. You sell it the next year, you're going to recapture all of that. It's going to be income to you. Number two, you've got a loan going for five years. You just deducted it all in one year. Now you've got a loan to pay off the next five years. So you're going to have a big expense in the first year, but then you're going to have to actually pay the cash. But you know you're going to have tax liability so while you've money, got right. So if you're paying five hundred dollars a month, that's uh, what twelve thousand dollars a year, eleven thousand dollars a year, something like that. So that would show as income the second year because you don't have the deduction to offset it, right? Exactly. It, it doesn't. It doesn't increase your income, but it, you don't, you're right. You don't have a deduction to offset it. So it feels like you're getting taxed on money you don't have because it's not it's, – it's called a timing difference. You're you already got the deduction up front. It. Yep, exactly. So that can create a problem. If you constantly buy new assets, if you're a company that you're constantly buying new tools and new equipment and new things like that, then this section, this, this bonus depreciation is a great thing. You deduct it all up front. You don't worry about it. Uh, there's also a new rule that says that you can make an election so that any asset purchased – that's $2,500 or less, can be expensed off the bat. So um, it doesn't even have to be recorded and depreciated. You just expense it. So that's been great. That used to be a $500 safe harbor. Now it's $2,500. So a lot of times we don't even have to have these assets on the books. So they're great things if you're constantly buying new assets. But if the problem comes when you're a company that, okay, you've got one truck, not a fleet of trucks, and you're not constantly replacing them, or you're buying them all in the first year and you're not planning on replacing them for five years, and you take all this expense up front, then you drive your tax brackets down where you're in the lowest tax bracket or you don't, or let's say you got a loss. Then the next year, all of a sudden, you're rifling up through the tax brackets because you don't have a deduction. So I watch things like that for my clients. And before I say, okay, we're going to take bonus, we're going to take Section 179, we're going to do this, I actually go through it and say, maybe we don't do that. Maybe we back off of that so that you've got a deduction next year when you're going to be in a higher tax bracket. So to me, these kind of things are the things you got to – you don't just take advantage of it because it's an option. You look at it and plan over the long haul, at least over the next year or two. So um, to me, that's really important because that is going to save you money over the long run. So, And sometimes you just need that money right now to invest back in the company, and you know you're going to pay more taxes on it later. So you just suck it up and you know that you're going to do that. But again, it's all you, – to me, it's about educating the, te- the client and saying, okay, here's where you're at, and this is what this is going to do, and what do you want me to do? Right. So That's good information. Um, but the other thing is – so state does not – most of the states do not accept bonus depreciation. So you go in, you buy a $50,000 SUV. Now, that used to be fifty. Now it's seventy five, right? Right. But you go buy a fifty thousand dollar SUV. You expense it all under bonus depreciation. You decide that's just easy. We're going to expense it under bonus. The state doesn't accept that. So the most that you're going to get from the state in that deduction, and I'm seeing this left and right, and people don't they don't realize it. But the most you're going to get in the first year from the state is ten thousand. You're not going to get fifty thousand. So. That becomes a problem. You're adding back forty thousand dollars to your income when it goes to the state and gets taxed, wow. and then you end up with a higher liability for state. And I see this all the time with the bonus depreciation on my some of my larger clients, where they're, I mean, they're they're doing hundreds of thousands of dollars 
minimum in purchases every year. And then all of a sudden they're having to add all that back or a couple million and they're having to add it all back for state. So all of a sudden we go from a loss for federal to literally, I had one client uh, that their income went up a couple million dollars from the depreciation change. It was awful. Um, That'll change your plans. Yes, it will. (laughs) Yes, it will. Um, So again, it's a matter of knowing all the rules and going, we've got these three different options for depreciation. What do we use? And in which circumstance does it make the most sense? And that's where your accountant becomes very important on right. on your equipment and depreciation and automobile. So on the topic um, aside of, from that, you still get – go ahead. Yeah, on the topic of automobiles, um, we were talking about the 6,000 pounds. They're eligible for tax deductions. I think a lot of the – obviously, we're in the home services industry, and I think uh, people outside the garage door industry are also listening that are in HVAC and things like that. But um, when it comes to trucks, uh, 6,000 pounds seems to be the, the weight that if you're wanting to get eligible tax deduction or additional tax deductions, you can do that. What's the advantage of being over 6,000 pounds versus under 6,000 pounds? So the over 6,000 is what we just discussed with the 25,000 uh, Section 179 and being able to fully depreciate it. If it was under 6,000 pounds, it's, called, it's what's called a luxury auto. Now, on the luxury auto, it's always been limited, so you don't even get to fully depreciate the vehicle. Over five years, you end up, even with the bonus depreciation, and this one you can't even really, Section 179, it doesn't get you anywhere. But So even with the bonus depreciation, it gets you maybe $23,000 um, over the life of the vehicle. So without the bonus, it was less than that. Um, Basically, they'd allow you $13,000 for a vehicle, and you know dang well you can't buy a vehicle for that these days. In 2018, they finally increased that. Um, They finally increased that. So the the bonus with the bonus depreciation, it's a little bit higher now where you're getting closer to the value of the car, but it limits it and says that you can't take the full depreciation on the car. Okay. So walk me through a And it's scenario. only bonus depreciation that does that. So even if you Section 179 it, you don't get very much Section 179 in the first year, and then that's it. You're done. So you leave all this basis on the car that you never actually get to take. So would it be more beneficial for me, let's say, like, um, I can buy an F-150 for 30-something, right? Um, I think I'm buying new F-150s for, like, 36-ish. Um, I can buy, let's say, an F-250 and put, like, a service body bed on it and get it over 6,000 pounds, and I'm paying 55. Um, I'm going to pay more in gas on the 250, of course. Uh, however, that's definitely a better truck if we can, if you know, if that works. Financially, with taxes in consideration, uh, which would be the better net purchase? Hey guys, have you heard of a company named Somer? Somer builds some of the best openers on the market, which are all produced in Germany. They've busted on the scene here recently and for good reason. They offer tons of flexibility. I'll give you a few reasons why this diehard LiftMaster fan, me, started buying Somer operators recently. The Somer team here in the U.S. provides excellent customer service and had all the answers to my questions. Roman and Andy, the U.S. reps, they're easy to deal with. The rail for this operator is in the box. Talk about space saving. Somer can solve so many problems that others can't. My experience has been amazing, and I challenge you to try Somer out yourself. Somer has some amazing deals for our listeners. 
To learn more about these promotions, call Somer at 704-424-5787. Use coupon code TORSIONTALK. You can also visit them online at somer-usa.com. Um, I'm going to pay more in gas on the 250, of course. Uh, however, that's definitely a better truck if we can, if, you know, if that works financially with taxes and consideration, uh, which would be the better net purchase? And I don't know if there's. See, and that's the hard part. That's the hard part. Because anytime, remember, anytime you get a deduction, you're only getting a percentage of on tax. And it depends on what tax bracket you're in as to how much you're saving. I got you. So it depends on, again, how much depreciation we take, how much we drive down that income, what tax bracket you end up in that year. So if you're in a low tax bracket, spending more money is not going to help you. It's not, you're not going to get the bang for your buck. And to me, the biggest tax deductions, the best deductions in the code are the things that you would have spent money on anyway Agreed. that you can now take as a business expense. You know what I mean? Yeah. Home office deduction. That's one of those things that, okay, you're working out of your home. You've legitimately got a home a home office. It's, there's some rules in the code on when you can deduct a home office. But let's say you qualify. That you would have paid for your home anyway. So you're not, you don't have any additional expense, and all of a sudden you got a deduction for it. Right. When you have to actually shell out the money to get the deduction, it's different. So you're you're taking out a loan for a truck, fifty thousand dollars versus one that you could buy for thirty thirty five. It's still only you're still only getting a percentage of that for the deduction. So let's say you're in the twenty five percent tax bracket, six percent per state, thirty one percent at fifty five thousand. Um, you're looking at seventeen thousand off in taxes at thirty five thousand. You're looking at um, ten thousand off in taxes. So let's say there's a seven thousand dollar difference. Is that what I said? Seventeen. There's a six thousand dollar difference between those two, but you've got to pay an additional twenty thousand dollars to get that six thousand dollar tax savings. Not worth it. Yeah. Not worth it unless you need that truck. Unless you need that two fifty and you need it ramped up and you need the extra power and you need the newer vehicle so that you can put more miles on it. It has to make business sense. And I think right. that's where some people go wrong. There were, when they first brought out this, this law with the $25,000, um, the section 179 on SUVs, I had multiple clients go on December 31st that year and go buy Hummers. That was when the Hummers were really big. Yeah. And that was back, not to date myself, but that was back when the Hummers were $50,000 and that was a lot of money for a car. Right Now it's nothing. You can't buy a truck for $50,000, but um, barely anyway. So the, the people were going out and, and buying these things, and it drove me nuts because then the next year, and I was talk, I'm talking about lawyers. I'm, ta- I'm talking about service people. I'm not talking about people that were actually using any kind of work truck. Right. It, but what happened is they then they took on these big loans for, I mean, six- and seven-year loans on these things. So then they can't understand why they're paying taxes the next year when they had no income. They, you know, they bought them out their income that year, go into a lower tax bracket, great. Then the next five, six years, they're paying for this thing, and they're going, where did my deductions go? Well, you took them all. Yeah. And then and then the other thing is it's not – then they've got to put the gas in the Hummer. They've got to pay the insurance on the Hummer. They've got to you know, pay all these expenses. So it, at the end of the day, if it saves you in taxes but you can't afford to pay the loan, didn't help you at all. <laughs> Agreed. So it still has to make cash flow sense. It still has to make business sense. And then within the business sense – so the question would be if you've got um, – if you could pay $35,000 for an under 6,000-pound truck or you could pay thirty-five dollars or $40,000 for an over 6,000, then go with the 35000 over 6,000. So, But when you're looking at jumping at jumping 20000 
and you don't necessarily need it, it's not worth it. Does that change when it comes to new versus used at all? They removed the restrictions for used last year. So no, it's actually oh, nice. the same, the same, whether it's new or used. Okay. And then, um, what about leased vehicles? So I've never thought leased vehicles were a good idea just because the amount of mileage that we put on them. But there's guys in the industry that swear by leases. Um, if you're going way over on mileage or you have to have some ridiculously high mileage um, lease and pay extra for it, is there any tax benefits that really genuinely offset that? No. No, nothing that you wouldn't already get on the automobile. There's uh, luxury auto limits if it's under 6,000 pounds. There's the same thing. It gets limited. Um, there's an add back to make sure that it's equal. Um, it's not – I have never seen where a lease is better. The only time I see when a lease is better is on somebody who is going to rotate their car every couple of years that has no intentions of keeping that car more than a couple of years, that has, like you said, the high mileage. Generally, it doesn't work on the high mileage. The low mileage um, – Yes. So you've got a low mileage car. You know, as a business owner, you're going to you're going to flip this thing every couple of years. So you're you're going to expense it as you go. Basically, you don't get the upfront deduction. You just get to expense it as you make the payments. Okay. So it's not a bad thing, but there's not. The problem is I don't generally see where it benefits you again from a cash flow standpoint and an actual business uh, a business purpose. I don't generally see it better over buying the vehicle if you plan on like especially with y'all where you have a fleet of trucks and you're going to put high mileage on them and you really need it to you know you're, you're going to have to replace them when they wear out right. so not necessarily every couple of years because you want to so um i've never really seen where it benefits from a business standpoint to do it now i have seen people do fleets like that where there's an equipment leases almost like it's a, an equipment lease where they have fleets on them because they can't afford to have all of that on their credit and they can't afford to go do the loans and they're doing them in high volume. So I've seen that happen when it just makes more business sense because of the, the whole financial aspect of it, but not necessarily from a tax perspective. Okay. So on, uh, in the garage door industry, a lot of businesses, you know, we have to make a decision. Do we want to hire 1099 contractors or do we want to hire, uh, employees? I've chosen to hire employees. I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the differences from the uh, employee or the subcontractors view. I've gained a couple really good guys who used to work for other companies as 1099. Uh, they learned last year taxes weren't so great for them. Apparently they didn't have some of the same deductions they had had in the past and they felt like going to yeah. W-2 was better for them now, um, allowing the the employer to help pay some of the payroll taxes. Can you speak to some of that from an employee versus a 1099, uh, like from their perspective? Which one's best for them now, and you know how did that change? So this is an interesting question that I get all the time, um, and it depends. It depends. That's always a wonderful accounting answer. Mm -hmm. It depends. So, and I go through it on a case-by-case -case basis, but here are the advantages and disadvantages. When you are, this year, they took out the employee of reimbursed business expenses, which means that if you're a W-2 employee, you cannot deduct any expenses that are not reimbursed by your employer. So, you're an employee, you put a lot of miles on your own personal vehicle, you can't deduct that anymore. 
you can't deduct your um, anything related to the automobile. You can't deduct any of your meals. You can't deduct uniforms. You can't deduct anything. So that's a definite negative this year. Um, that's starting 2018 going forward. If you're 1099, then you pull that in, you bring that income in. You get to deduct all your expenses against that income before you get hit with the Social Security and Medicare and the income taxes on it. Now, if you're a W-2, your employer is paying half of your Social Security and Medicare. Social Security and Medicare up to the Social Security limit is about is 15.3%. Your employer covers half, you cover, and half is withheld from your paycheck when you're a W-2. When you are a 1099, you are paying it on your individual tax return uh, all by yourself. But it's on a lower number than what would have gone through your W-2 because it's on your income minus all of your expenses. So, again, it depends on how many expenses you have. It depends on most of the time with empo- when, when an employer calls me up and starts asking this question of whether to pay, pay the employees that way or the employer 1099 that way, I'm telling, the, it, I'm telling them you're going to have to gross it up. So if you make um, a certain dollar amount on, let's say you make $10 an hour as an employee, you're going to want to make more than that. As you're going to make eleven, want to make eleven dollars an hour as a 1099 contractor, so you can cover your additional Social Security and Medicare bur- right. burden. So that's one thing to consider. Another thing to consider is the fact that now you have to make estimated payments, and this is where I see people go awry on the 1099s. And, and this is why the government really doesn't like 1099 contractors. They really want them to be employees. And this is why they go after companies trying to make them employees instead of 1099 contractors. 1099 contractors have a tendency to not pay the taxes, or they end up in an installment agreement at the end of the year because they didn't know. When you are used to that being withheld from your check, and now all of a sudden you have to pay it on your own quarterly, it's a lot of money coming out. You've got 15.3% Social Security and Medicare. You've got your income taxes, which are 6% for state, and then the federal can be anywhere from 10% all the way up to 39%, depending on how much you make. So you're looking at about half needing to go after expenses, needing to go to taxes. And that is a huge hit for somebody who is used to the money being withheld as they go. Uh, Writing that check is not ever easy. And then you have to keep up with it quarterly, run projections, figure out where you're at. So it's a lot more complicated to be 1099 than it is to be W-2. But the fact, but again, that's why the Department of Labor and the IRS are after this so much is because they don't want, they have trouble collecting the money from 1099 contractors, it's a lot easier for them to get it through payroll through the, by the employers. Right. And I also think there's a lot of abuse in the fact that employers are treating 1099 uh, contractors like employees. And I think it's like, yeah, it's kind of wrong. I mean, and, and there, there's a, yeah. there's a, well, like you're supposed to, if you're an employee versus a contractor employees, you have more control over as a business owner. Right. The contractors, independent contractors, you're not supposed to have any control over them. Right. To be an independent contractor, technically, you are supposed to pl- supply your own tools. The contractor right. should supply their own tools, should make their own schedule, should um, they should have the ultimate control over their work and flexibility. They cannot draw unemployment, and that's generally where a 1099 is going to get an employer in trouble. They don't want to be 1099. They think that they're, they don't understand the 1099. This happens a lot of times in younger people and in certain industries more than others. But uh, the, t- the person goes to, they hadn't been educated on it. They're in their first year. They get to the end of the year. They owe all these taxes and they can't understand why because they've never been 1099. Then they end up mad at the employer and going after everybody trying to figure out how they can not pay these taxes. And then they end up going that they, so they lose their job or quit the job and then go get unemployment. 
they go report it to the DOL for, to try to get unemployment. They can't get unemployment. So the DOL comes after the employer going, well, they should have been an employee. So we're going to give them unemployment. We're going to charge you on it. Mm-hmm. So there's things like that that you've really got to watch. But from an employer standpoint, there's a bunch of rules. I mean, they have to – you cannot control them. Right. So that's the one of the biggest ones. And they're supposed to do work for multiple – that's another thing that they look yeah, at these days. They're primary, supposed to do work for multiple companies. You can't be their Correct. primary You income. can't be their only source of income. Right. So – and the other thing is to protect companies – they need to have a company. They should have an LLC or an S-Corp. And even then, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's still going to hold, but it makes it a little bit thicker than them just than you just paying that person as a contractor. If you pay a company as a contractor, it's a little hard to say that that should be a W-2 when you're paying the right. uh, business. Yeah, I thought it was weird. So, One of my competitors actually just uh, enforced that. They made all of their uh, 1099 contractors create a, if they say if you want to work here, you got to get, uh, yeah, you got to become a business, create a company. Yep, and then we'll hire you as a ten ninety nine. Yep, that's what they do. That's what they'll do. But it's still got, like I said, it's still got risks. And this year, again, there's this change to the tax code, so there's this twenty percent deduction, and it qualifies. So now there's more ambition to be ten ninety nine, honestly, than ever, because now you can pay um, your. Um, it, there's that twenty percent deduction on the flow through income. So W-2, you don't get the 20% deduction. 1099, after expenses, you did, you get the 20% deduction. So you're only taxed on 80% of it after the expenses. So it's not – so there's even more motivation to be 1099. It is going to lower your tax burden. But, again, that's the, the there's a rule in place that says if you were an employee and you were let go of that position as an employee and are now a 1099 contractor, you cannot take that 20% deduction. So that's kind of the stop to make sure people don't start jumping ship as employees going on as 1099s and taking advantage of something they weren't supposed to. Right. So I want to jump into, that's all really good information. I think it's going to help out a lot of our listeners. Um, The differences between like sole proprietorship, partnership, LLC, and corporations. Um, Sole proprietor, as I understand it, is you're just kind of like, taking the funds, putting it in a checking account. Like you haven't, you haven't, you have very little, uh, like, uh, high risk. If someone sues your so-called company, they're suing you as an individual. Um, and then I don't know of all the tax stuff, but you can speak to that. And then I understand partnership, just being two people to come together, start a business two or more. Um, and then LLC is, uh, what I started as and which I typically start my businesses as it gives you some protection, uh, so that you're, you're separate from your business, but you want to make sure that you don't mix your personal and your business funds together. And then corporations where you're almost kind of like an employee of a corporation. Uh, and then you have to keep minutes and have uh, board meetings and things like that. Do I understand all those correctly? Yes. So, this, correct. So, there's some subdivisions in that, too. So, right. with a sole proprietor, and again, I'm not an attorney. I'm an accountant. So let me just right. claim that I'm not getting, giving legal, legal advice. Uh, but the big difference between a sole proprietorship and what's called a single-member LLC, meaning only one person owns the LLC, is legal protection. From a tax standpoint, it's the same the, for the most part. Sole proprietorships and a single-member LLC where I'm the only owner is what's called a disregarded entity for for IRS purposes, for tax purposes. 
So it reports the same way a sole proprietorship would. It reports on your Schedule C, on your individual income tax return. It goes through the income and expenses and it's taxed the same way. Now, because it's an LLC, which is separate legally from the owner, you need to keep a separate set of books. You need to keep a separate bank account. You don't want to commingle your business and personal funds. With a sole proprietor, like you said, you, you can. It doesn't matter, which I still recommend even as a sole proprietor, keeping a separate bank account, keeping separate funds, and not commingling your business and personal. The reason why is because it makes it really muddy when you get audited. It makes it really hard to come up with your taxes at the end of the year. It is so much simpler if you can go. I tell everybody, keep one bank account keep or you know even a couple bank accounts depending on your business but keep a bank account keep a credit card that is 100% business not personal uh, no personal on it and then at the end of the year you go for or at the end of the quarter or monthly or however frequently you do it all you have to do is go through the bank account and log all the transactions in QuickBooks uh, go through the credit cards log all the transactions in QuickBooks there's no debate on oh was that business was that personal what was that for Uh, it makes it a lot cleaner then the IRS comes in and audits it's really clean. We know exactly where you know what everything is, and it makes it simple and painless. So now the getting into the and I recommend that all entities. So the partnerships you don't see a lot of partnerships. There's family partnerships. There's reasons for partnerships. The most common among the small businesses these days are LLCs and S corporations. Like I said, if the LLC is a single member, we just discussed that. If there's multiple members in the LLC, it's treated as a partnership. It files its own tax return. It files what's called a Form 1065 partnership return, um, and it's legally separate. It's got a lot of flexibility in it. Um, you can have different people have different ownerships, and their profit and loss percentages do not have to go based on ownership. Uh, their profit and loss can be allocated however it's decided under the original agreement or the operating agreement. You can own, have one person own 95% of the company and split profits with the 5% owner 50-50. Not a problem. You can have one person that's complete, the one that's funding the company, get 100% of the losses, where the other person gets income but not losses. There's so much flexibility. The catch is at the end of the day, distributions have to follow. The money you get out of that company basically has to follow what you're t- being taxed on. You can't say, oh, I'm going to take 95% of the distributions. I'm going to get all the cash out of the company, but you're going to recognize 95% of the income. That doesn't work. It has to make sense. Um so that's the LLC. The LLC, and then you've got the S corporation. So the big difference between the LLC and the S corporation is that the LLC is all of the money, all of the income that comes through if you are actively involved in the LLC is subject to self-employment tax at 15.3%. That same Social Security and Medicare we were talking about on sole proprietorships and 1099 income. So with an S corporation, there's a game that can be played with that. So an S corporation, you form a corporation, it's a formal corporation, or you can even form an LLC and do an S election on it, and it turns it into an S corporation. All it is is a, the S corporation, it's an, it's an election, it's called a small business election, and it takes a corporation or an LLC and turns it into what's called an S corporation, but it makes it flow through to your individual return as far as the taxes, uh, where it's taxed. And it's, you have two different interests in an S corporation. One, you're an employee which is where the payroll comes in and the, the Social Security and Medicare comes in. The second part of your is your ownership. It's, you're an investor. So the portion of your investment income is not subject to Social Security and Medicare. This is where the big savings comes in between the LLC and the S-Corporation. 
the rub is that you have to file quarterly payroll tax returns. So if you're the only owner in the company and you don't have anybody else on payroll and you've got some subcontractors but nobody on payroll, you still have to file quarterly payroll tax returns even if you don't issue yourself a, a payroll that quarter. So at a minimum, you're doing quarterly payroll. You've got federal unemployment tax and state unemployment tax. Uh, again, the, the headaches of the payroll tax returns. So you're looking at around $1,500 in expenses uh, just right off the bat that you wouldn't have under the LLC. So what I generally tell people is there's a point in time where the income is high enough that it makes it, it that it makes sense to switch to the S corporation. So, that's so even if you question. started an LLC. Yeah. When is the best time to leap from maybe like you want to go from sole proprietorship to an LLC or an LLC to an S corp? Are there triggers? And that's a, it's, there are, and it's, it's generally an income trigger. It's a, what are you planning on doing with it? What are your liabilities? What, um, how much money do you plan on making? So, and at what point? The other thing is there's some advantages. If you have losses, there's some advantages to being in an LLC. If you're, uh, cause you know, some businesses will have losses on the front end. Um, and I think you and I might, might have even done that with one of your companies watched it and said, okay, at what point in time do we flip right. this over? If you have loans in the company, there's some what's called basis issues that can cause problems. If, if the LLC, if you personally guarantee a loan, you can count it towards basis, meaning if I have losses, I can take those losses against other income on my individual return as long as I have basis in those losses, as long as I'm, I'm actually guaranteeing a loan or funding the loss personally. With an S-Corp, it's not that easy. If the loan is in the name of the business, you don't get credit for it until you pay it. So you might have losses that you can't take if you have other income, if you've got multiple businesses going. So there's some disadvantages to the S-Corporation as much as there's advantages. Uh, but again, the, the administration, what I watched early on was I used to, I worked for a firm that everybody was an S. Let's just make everybody an S. And what I saw with some of these clients not ever doing the payroll, and that is a flag for an audit. If you do not recognize you were supposed to have both interests, you were supposed to be an employee and you were supposed to, and you're an investor, you cannot be all investor in an S Corp and work the S Corp. It has to have an employee. So if you're not doing your W 2 wages as an officer, it can be a flag where the IRS comes in and says, no, we're going to subject all this to Social Security and Medicare, and all of it should have been run through payroll, and oh, wow. here's penalties for not doing the payroll taxes and not doing the payroll tax returns. And and it's just so – but the IRS doesn't tell you how much your salary has to be. It's a reasonable salary. And the reasonable is what would somebody in your industry make if it was an arm's length transaction and you work for somebody else, what would you make? So that's kind of the – the starting a gray point. area there. Some accountants go 50-50. It is a very gray area. And some accountants go 50-50. And, I, you know, I had accounting firms I worked for that said that. It's 50% W-2 and 50% coming through, flow-through income distribution. Are there so any new laws that we should be aware of when it comes to all of this? That maybe They just have passed? audited. Here's the funny thing. A lot of it is um, that 20% deduction is the big thing on all of these. But the... And then the meals changed. But the big thing to know is that it, the tax courts are what really dictate the law. They, get, they can go write the laws all day long, and then they go fill in the gaps. And then when the IRS starts auditing people and people start taking it to tax court to fight them, that's when it's really interpreted. So a lot of this stuff we're not even going to know for a couple of years. It'll take them a couple of years to start up the audits. Then we'll start getting the audit results. Then we'll start seeing how they the tax court's interpreting the law, how liberal they're being, you know, how aggressive they're being. 
with the S-Corp, they would not audit for a long time. They really didn't address it in the tax court. It was almost like they stayed away from it. The tax court really did not want to address this whole reasonable compensation issue. And then a few years ago, they finally started having cases come through. And a lot of them, what I was seeing was that if you hit the FICA max, which right now is around $120,000, $130,000 um, on, on the first, that first amount of payroll, if you hit the, the Social Security max on your payroll, they, they kind of left you alone. But there was they, the IRS came up with a formula. It's one of those formulas that we don't even have the information to do. Like I couldn't go do that calculation because it's going to change every year. Right. It's based on industry standards for depending on what industry you're in. It's based on um, whether you've had a raise or not. They want to see that you're increasing your income. You know, I would I would never recommend you not being paid. Well, it depends on what you're doing. Actually, it, generally, you don't want to be the lowest paid employee in your firm. Yeah. You know, if you've got somebody else doing a similar job to you, you want to make sure that you're being paid what they're being paid. I remember the but first again, time. again, it's I, all in how aggressive you want to be. Yeah, I remember the first time I got a paycheck as a W-2 employee. I was a kid, and I came home, and I'm like, Dad, who's FICA? And he was like, <laughs> son, get used to it. And so I was just like, man, these guys are taking so much money. And I was like, they didn't even show up to work. I don't understand. And so – it's crazy. Like when I think about all the taxes that I pay between uh, payroll taxes, uh, sales tax, um, income tax. Oh, yeah. And property tax. As a business owner, if you add it up, you are not a happy camper. <laughs> it is ridiculous. Like I'm sitting here and I'm like, wow, like if you take my total income and then you take all the sales tax and all the taxes that I pay in, in every area. I mean, there's even tax on gasoline. So if you get into that, like everything, I'm, I mean, I've uh, got to be paying like 50% of my income in taxes. If not more than that, I would imagine because I'm getting taxed with everything that I do. I mean, if I go to a restaurant, I'm paying taxes for the food. If I go to the store, everything, I mean, like everything's taxed. And so I, yeah. I don't know, it's just crazy. Like, I, I just feel like we're. And it's and it's a bunch high. of different people. It's a bunch of different entities getting it too. Right. It's not all the same ent entity. It's right. the federal. It's the state. It's the local. It's the you know the county, the city. It's it's all different. It's all different municipalities. All right. So I got so uh, three more questions never, for you. Um, I hear people make comments uh, a lot, especially I think we just had a thread on this on like a garage door Facebook group that we had about like making. Uh, buying stuff, and we kind of touched on this briefly earlier, or making donations at the end of the year um, for tax benefits. Now, you had made a statement, and I'm in the same boat. If you don't need it, don't buy it. But is there ever a scenario where buying something or making a charitable donation uh, instead of maybe giving that money to the government would go to them? So charitable charitable deductions are always good if you're itemizing. They've changed the rules this year, so a lot of people aren't itemizing. You ended up if you're married, there's a twenty four thousand dollars standard deduction. So depending on where your state income taxes, which are capped at ten thousand dollars, and your mortgage interest are, then sometimes you can benefit from the charitable, and sometimes you don't. Instead of giving stuff away, it's all it's you know if you're planning on throwing something away versus giving it to a charity, that's a no brainer. Go ahead and go get the receipt, and if it helps you, great. Um, as far as cash, I mean, there's got to be a charitable purpose to it, but yes, it can still save you money in taxes. So at least 
you're only funding, let's say, your 25% tax bracket, 6% per state, 31 – you give $10,000 to a charity. Basically, $3,100 of that you saved in taxes. So you've got almost $7,000 that um, you gave 7000 and the government gave three is basically okay. the long and the short of it. So, again, you're spending the money. Um so it's you're only getting a percentage. It's never 100 percent. But um, buying stuff, that's another story. And like you said, like you reiterated, there you never buy stuff you don't need. It, it's not ever going to behoove you to buy stuff you don't need. If you're buying things, if you know you need stuff, you, uh, need equipment, for example, at the end of the year, go ahead and buy it in the current year in December versus January of the next year to speed up the deduction. It's all it is is a timing difference. Right. So if you think your income is higher this year than what it's going to be next year, or, you know, it, it's a game. You've got to look at the big picture. And a lot of times I'll see people, I'll hear people talk about that. And again, like we talked about with the depreciation, they just want to take it all up front. And it's great because then you pay less in taxes. Theoretically, you can invest that money back into the company. So even if you do pay more taxes the next year, you've got more in your company and you're creating more. So that always makes sense. Um, but if you're anticipating, hey, this is this is the biggest year I've ever had. Next year's not going to be as big. Let's speed up the deduction. Let's go ahead and buy some assets in December that we would have bought January or February of next year. It right. makes sense. So that's now, what most year, people end up doing. You can speed up if your cash basis. You can speed up paying your rent. You can speed up paying, you know, some of the things like that, and go ahead and get the deduction in December instead of January. Okay. Last year they had an equipment deduction, I believe. Uh, and we ended up buying a trailer and a lift. Uh, is that gone away? Um, again, that'd be the section 179, the bonus depreciation. There's nothing, you know, it, it's, uh, you'd be able to depreciate, fully depreciate the asset. Okay. Yeah. I was just when curious. You purchase it. Um, yeah. as a business so that owner, would be the trailer and go ahead. Yeah. As a business owner, like who offers health insurance to our employees, are there any tax benefits to us? Uh, for offering health benefits to our employees? There is a health insurance credit. If your employees make below, the average employee can't make more than over a certain amount, and it doesn't count for the, that one may actually count for the owner. Uh, but there's a bunch of rules around it. You get to deduct the cost of the health insurance, so it's always a deduction for the, the owner, mm-hmm. and it's a good benefit to keep um, for your for your employee retention. Yeah. So it's never a bad thing if you have the ability to offer health insurance. It's never a bad thing to do it. The problem is they're getting so outrageously expensive. It's crazy. And uh, and, and even the employer doesn't have to pay all of it. You just have to pay a portion of it. The insurance companies uh, generally say half of what it costs to insure the individual is what the employer has to pay, and then the rest the employee can deduct out of there. Yeah, that's what we um, do now. We yeah, would like to get to it. the point where we are – paying a hundred percent of the family, but that's, you're talking like that. That's huge. That's like a $10,000 raise of a for each employee. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, <laughs> these are mortgage payments insurance. That's the, I work with some of my clients on, on getting quotes for their insurance. And, and that's what I'm saying. I remember last year looking at it and going, that's more than my mortgage for a family plan just yeah. for the monthly premium on it. It was more than my mortgage. I, this, that's ridiculous. But again, so it's, it's, if you can offer it to your employees, it's an incredible benefit, and it is something that does help a client retention, and you do get a, a deduction. There is a credit. Again, If you're, I think your average employee has to make less than $50,000 a year. Don't quote me on that. I'd have to look it up. Um, I have done it. I just have to look at the terms of the credit. 
Um, there's a thing, there's also a thing that not many people know about called a quesera, QS, was it QSERA? It is a, uh, a vehicle where you can reimburse medical expenses for your employees. All they have to do is prove that they have a qualified health care plan and that they got it on their own. And you can actually now you can't do it for the officer or the shareholder of a company. You have to you can do it for the employees, but not the shareholder. So the you're allowed to reimburse up to a certain dollar amount of the employees' expenses, and it doesn't matter whether it goes to their health insurance, whether it goes to their medical expense. You know what I mean? It's it's it can be anything related to medical. That can be a great tool. Uh, for your employees, so at that least would you're doing be, something. If you're not to offering health insurance, this is a great correct. Option. Okay, correct. Because then they have to they go get their own health insurance, and if they don't spend as much in health insurance as now you have to offer it for everybody. Again, the officer doesn't, the shareholder doesn't count. You can't do it for the shareholder, but right. you can do it for everybody else. That's one of those things that stinks because us little guys are kind of shafted on that one. Yep. Um, the, but it but it really is a great vehicle. It it. it if somebody's got a family plan, then they're probably going to pay more than what you can do in the case of raw. But somebody else might have an individual, and then they bring you receipts, and they get reimbursed for their actual medical expenses in addition to the individual health care coverage. So, again, there's limits on it, but it's a great vehicle and something that came out, I want to say, in 2008, um, 2017. or I mean, sorry, 2018. I believe it's 2018, maybe 2017. But that's something to look into. Okay. If you can't quite offer group health coverage. Okay. Now we're looking into doing like retirement plans and things like that, 401k, whatever. Um, there's some expenses upfront and ongoing for us to do that, especially if we do a match. Uh, are there any tax benefits to us as employers if we offer that to our employees? Again, you get the deduction. You get the deduction. There is a credit in the first year that you offer it where you can get up to – at five hundred, either five hundred or thousand dollar credit towards to offset the expense of setting up the four hundred one k. It's only in the first year. Okay. But um, so there is a small tax credit for it. Um, it's you always get to deduct the expenses related to the plan, and it's good for employee retention. That's another good employee retention. In order for as shareholders, we generally want to max ours out. So as the as the owner, in order for us to max it out, there's a you can do a three percent match. On it's a three three percent across the board for everybody employed, or four percent for everybody contri- of what people are contributing. You it's a I want to say it's a one percent each on the first three percent, and then a half a percent on the next two percent of what they contribute. So as long as they're at least contributing five percent, then you're paying four percent to match. Okay. If you do that, it's called the safe harbor, where you can, as the shareholder, can put in as much as you want. Your highly compensated employees can put as much as you want up to the maximum allowed, which is around 19. Again, sorry, I don't know the, the limits. It changes from 18 to 19 to 20, and I'm always working in multiple tax years. Um, but it's around $19,000 that you could defer and not have to worry about um, any top-heavy testing and all that. Because basically, if, if your employees, if all of your employees aren't contributing, it can cause problems for the top the top paid employees or the shareholders to actually contribute to theirs. It can lower the amount that they're allowed to put in. Okay. So if you were trying to maximize it, then that helps. And that's where it generally comes in. Again, client uh, employee retention is a big thing with the 401ks. Um, and then you being able to put into your own retirement, and that will save you enough a lot of times between that 
and the tax savings on the, you know, the expenses, it can save you enough to make it worth your while. But the employee retention is generally going to be the big thing. There's also, if you're, if you don't have employees, there's what's called a unique, or let's say it's family run and it's only the family. Uh, it's a little bit cheaper to administer, administer, but still allows you to put even more away. Very nice. Because you can actually match up to 25% of the payroll. It wow. doesn't have to be, but the safe harbor is th- the three or four percent. I think what I'm like, I'm sitting here listening to all this and I'm learning so much. I know that I'm going to have to listen to this like three more times and literally take notes because there's so many like nuggets in this that um, I want to understand better. And you did a great job explaining it, but it's, it goes by so fast and I'm just like, wow, there's so much. So in my brain, for whatever reason, I don't know, I, I pick up a lot of things very quickly, but this, for whatever reason, it just takes me a little bit more time. Um, so I think our listeners are probably going <laughs> to have to listen twice <laughs> to pick up everything because it's all, there's so much good stuff and, uh, and understanding it all is great. Um, so I'm sorry. It's so technical too. It's kind of no, hard I know. sometimes. And there's to, no straight there's answer so to a lot of this to stuff. It. It's hard to dumb it down or, or make it simple. There's so many complexities to but it. You've done such a good job. Changes, so. Yeah. You're doing awesome. So the, is there any questions that you think I should have asked that you think would be important to our listeners as either a business owner or a 1099 uh, contractor or even an employee uh, that would be important to share? My biggest recommendation is get an accountant that you can trust, that watches you, that helps you with these deadlines, that, that sits down with you and discusses things either over the phone or um, in the in, a, in person. We've We've gone to... We've actually, it's funny because everything's going towards electronic. And we have stepped back in the last couple of years where I actually have someone answering my phone. We had had the automated system for years. And then I said, you know what? This isn't good customer service. This isn't about people. And we are about people and relationships. And we've gotten to the point where I will, even with my employees, I'm like, pick up the phone and call the client. Get off the email. Get off the, you know, get off all of this stuff and get face to face. Sit down. Talk about it. Like you said, this is extremely complex. So if you can sit face-to-face, break it down, and then we can ask questions and interact and say, okay, so what are you trying to accomplish and what works best for you with what you're trying to accomplish? The worst thing is people coming to me going, well, my friend's accountant said, good, good, good for you. What's your situation? (laughs) Not your friend's situation. Let's talk about this. Let's see what works best for you. We get that too as garage door guys. We get it too. Well, you're here to fix my door, but but my friend – he got his door fixed and he said this and we're like, okay, yeah. Call your uh, friend, yeah. have your friend yep. come over here and help you then. But yeah. That's the other thing the internet has, that creates complexities for everybody, I guess, on the internet. But yeah. but the other thing is that like the quarterly, I also recommend sit down with your accountant quarterly, especially when you start getting, when you're getting going, if you have changes in your income, all of this stuff, the worst thing we can do for a client is allow them to get to April 15th when they file their tax return and then go, I owe how much? That's the absolute worst thing that can happen to me. Right. But if you plan, if you go to your accountant quarterly, if you say, hey, this is what my income and expenses are, it doesn't take that long for us to run a few numbers and say, hey, here's what your estimated payment should be. Or, hey, this is what you're withholding in taxes. Let's up your withholdings a little bit. Let's make sure this is covered. Or just say, hey, this is what you're going to owe April 15th. If you don't want to pay it now in any of these other ways, here's all your options. 
it, you pay it April 15th, but know it's coming. And then talk, have those conversations, especially in November and December. This is the time of year where we're between tax deadlines, but we're doing a lot of, I mean, I'm meeting people nonstop going, let's plan for the end of the year. What's your income look like this year? How can we cut it down? What can we, you know, what can we do to yeah. plan and, and mitigate it? Hey, quick question, totally off subject. I know you and I had talked about it like six months ago or so. Um, and I know you can't talk specifics, but do you have any clients dealing with uh, like cryptocurrency and and the yeah. all the tax <laughs> stuff with that? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We have a couple. We, have, we don't have a whole lot. We have a couple. So the cryptocurrency's got a whole other dimension to it. And it's funny because for me, it's it's kind of, for me, it's kind of a common sense thing almost. It's it, it from an accounting standpoint, it's it's an asset and it's a payment. So it's right. income to you when you receive it as a payment, and then as it appreciates or depreciates over time, then capital gains. I mean, that's it, that just makes sense from an accounting standpoint. But I guess that's the thing to know is first of all, it's being reported now. It's they're getting a hold of it. It is not the untracked currency anymore, which is why it was a big thing. Anything that anybody thinks is untracked before that, it was bartering. If you barter services, again, that's supposed to be tracked. A lot of people don't know that. You're not supposed to barter services without recording the fair market value and income or expense. Um, but it's, there's, there's just two different components to it. And for a long time, it wasn't tracked. Now it's tracked. Now there's additional reporting requirements to the government. The more that they can get reported to them, the less they have to do in audits to find it. Right. So that's why they have all this additional reporting. Every time they, they audit things and they start seeing these trends, of income being left off, they find a way to get people to to get different industries to report that to them so that they don't have to go audit to find it. So let me ask you a and question. that's what this cryptocurrency is becoming. If I wanted to accept a cryptocurrency, let's say Bitcoin for garage door services, let's say it was $1,000, and um, I would probably use uh, BitPay, which is a uh, Atlanta-based company that – takes the cryptocurrency, locks it in at the time of the transaction so that there's no fluctuation and then transfers that into cash into your bank account within 24 hours. Now, the question is, because Bitcoin is considered um, like an asset and taxed uh, with capital gains, would I be taxed for income and capital gains when I, capital gains when I accept that as payment? If it immediately converts, then there wouldn't be a capital gain component. Okay. So if you were paid in Bitcoin and immediately cashed out, then theoretically you'd be cashing out for what you were paid. Okay. So does that make sense? Yeah, so yeah. your income would be what the Bitcoin was meant to cover. And then the capital gain wouldn't come until uh, you started looking at I'm at holding if it I left time. it in there, yeah, and let's say I left it in there for six months and that thousand dollars became fifteen hundred. I withdraw the money. I'll pay capital gains on the five hundred. Correct. Income? So okay. that five hundred would be short term capital gains at that point. Yeah, you would probably want to wait and hold on to it longer for a year. And then, then if you're hold on, yeah, a year, you got long term capital gains. So I did so much so, research on all this the, stuff back in the day. So I have some knowledge, but I was just curious on that transactional, like if you accept it as a payment, because it was intended to be a payment, but it's actually being traded at, uh, like a commodity. And you have all these like uh, exchanges where you can buy and sell. It's almost become like its own little stock market. It's really cool. Um, yeah. But you have to be careful yeah. because I think a lot of people underestimate like there's day traders doing this. Um, 
And I don't know that they're making a whole lot of money after you take in consideration the short-term capital gains and income tax that you got to put on it. Yeah, I haven't seen a whole lot of. I've seen a little bit of activity in it. I've got, like I said, I've got several clients that are that are doing it. I have one client that actually bought all the mining equipment. When he oh, said wow. mining equipment in that first meeting, I think I was in the middle of a tax deadline, and I actually thought about drilling equipment. But <laughs> and I realized that we're talking about computer equipment, mining for the cryptocurrency. Yeah. But so, and it's a, it's. I think the Bitcoin's supposed to be a limited, like it's a limited issue too. Kind of like our money used to be when it was actually backed by Golden Fort Knox, but mm-hmm. um, but now it's kind of <laughs> it's a it's a closed system, but not really. They can print any print money anytime they want. Well, you can mine it, um, but there's a capacity to how much that can be mined. It's a, like I think. Mm-hmm. See, the key is, and my philosophy with this is, I, I think the time to invest is probably here within the next five years because once Bitcoin becomes. Uh, fully maxed out where there's it's unable to be mined any any longer and it gets more and more difficult the more you mine uh, so it's going to take a while but um, I think that supply and demand will drive the cost of Bitcoin up over time and uh, but the the main exactly. issue with Bitcoin the value is, will go up yeah the value will go up and and a lot of Bitcoin has been lost and cannot be recovered which is crazy so the the yeah. amount of bitcoin it is still a high risk market absolutely absolutely and there's so many ways to get hacked and it gets stolen from you i mean whoever like i've got a digital key uh, that i can carry around with me but if i were to get jumped in an alleyway and somebody get that they have all of my money they got all my bitcoin like yeah. it, whoever holds possession yeah. of that key owns the bitcoin and so it's uh anyway it's crazy Try not to get off too far. Yeah, subject. that's where that's I, I may be um, not your typical accountant in a lot of ways, but I am conservative still. Yeah. <laughs> I'll jump out of an airplane with a parachute, but not without one. Yeah. But so I'm conservative on the on the fact that you know I don't get cutting edge. Like I wouldn't go invest in Bitcoin right now, but yeah. I would not necessarily just you know I I wouldn't guide a client one way or another. We discuss the risks versus the rewards, right. and and the tax ramifications. So, you know, it's one of those things where it's it's not – again, now that it's being reported and the government's getting their hands around it, I don't think it's going to have the appeal that it did before. Right. Because before that, it was – you know, it West. wasn't being reported. It was a way – no one was taxed. No one yeah. – you're not going to report it on your tax return. And most people I – mean, I won't say most. A lot of people will not <laughs> report it on their tax return unless there's some kind of 1099 to keep them honest. Right. I mean, you see it with sole proprietors all the time. That's why you have all these 1099s have to be issued to all these contractors. Because if not, and I have clients come in all the time and they go, okay, I've got my 1099s. Here you go. I'm like, okay, so did you get a 1099 from everybody that paid you? Because you are still responsible for reporting all of your income, not right. just what was 1099. But the government basically says, well, heck, at least we're getting what was 1099. <laughs> And then yeah. when they audit, they look at all the deposits in your bank account and go, oh, where'd all this other money go? Makes so, sense. again, it's now they've gotten their hands on the Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency. So I just think it's going to not quite be as appealing as it was from a tax standpoint. Right. So total rabbit trail wasn't planned, and I don't know how relevant that is to our audience, but it's interesting. So I figure I, I try to educate and entertain, and so it was along that path. Um All right. So you can like, let's say somebody's in California, hopefully not California for you, but um, Texas, wherever, and they own a garage door company and they're, they're unhappy with their accountant. Can you serve them if they're out of state? 
I definitely can. I definitely can. The state income taxes, we can go, we can go in any state. So, and there's intricacies to every state. And right now, because of the sales tax climate, we're having to know everything about every state anyway. So, um, it's, uh, it's, we're happy to serve. And again, it might be a phone call instead of an in-place meeting, but we definitely, what we generally prefer is, um, give us a call. Neely will answer the phone. She's my wonderful uh, I'm not even going to call her a secretary. She's receptionist, secretary. She does payroll. She's my one. She's one of my um, multi-purpose people here. Gotcha. Uh, but she does my scheduling too. Awesome. So if you want to get on my schedule, give me a call or give her a call, and she can uh, and put you on my calendar number? and let's have a conversation. Six seven eight five three four six two zero five. And I can and vouch. That's the first step is for us to have a phone call. Yeah, I can vouch. I mean, you guys can tell she knows what she's talking about. This wasn't intended to be a plug for her, but I'm trying to throw her a bone because she took some time to come on the podcast. I'd love for her to get compensated for taking the time to do this and educate the people in our industry. So if you have questions or uh, are considering getting a new CPA or you starting your business and you want a CPA, uh, hands down i got no complaints she's been phenomenal for me and she's probably not going to be your cheapest option but you get what you pay for and so i strongly recommend giving her a shout Uh, she will take care of you and i can tell you every year i've been a business owner i have stressed out every year not having a clue what was going on i don't do that at all anymore it's so nice to have somebody in your corner educating you and preparing you and making sure that you're taken care of and Angela does a wonderful job of that. Thank you, Ryan. Yes, ma'am. Well, thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. I think it's going to be a hit, and it, we're going to roll this out in, uh, I think, the first week of January so we can have um, uh, educate the garage door industry and the home services industry as a whole. And uh, we'll put your phone number and your email, or not your email, but your uh, web address on the podcast uh, in the description. So anybody who's listening, you want to contact her, uh, we'll have the phone number and the web address there. And uh, is there anything you want to add before we cut? I believe that's it. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for coming on the show. And uh, I guess I'll be seeing you or hearing from you here shortly so we can get our taxes taken care of. Yes, sir. Thank you. See you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I'm Hannah with Such and Such Media. Our team specializes in garage door marketing. So make sure to visit us at garagedoormarketing.co.